Are you ready to scale? Why not invest three minutes in our scalability index? It's quick, it's easy, and it's got specific guidance. Find it at evokinggenius.com slash scale. Hello and welcome back to Genius at Scale. Today's guest is Eric Huberman from Hawk Media. Eric, uh, introduce yourself to the guests if you would. Sure, uh, yeah. Eric Huberman, founder and CEO of Hawk Media, basically backgrounds e-commerce, built and sold a couple e-commerce companies about 10 years ago. And about nine years ago, started advising and consulting for brands on how to drive revenue growth using marketing. I uh, had had some success on my own, was able to work with some great brands like Red Bull, Verizon, HP, as well as a lot of startups. Just found that the whole marketing ecosystem was broken. It's really hard to find great marketing talent that actually knows how to grow businesses in a way that's cost-effective and nimble and flexible in the way you need it to be to have a successful marketing campaign. So decided to build my own little SWAT team, again, nine years ago, seven people each with their own expertise, made it, basically the idea was to be the best at what we do, but really easy to work with. And fast forward nine years later, we're 250 people. We've grown successfully over 4,000 brands uh, and built a ni nice little company here. And so with that, we launched a venture fund. We're on our second fund, a $50 million fund. We have an AI tool that basically downloads uh, 8,000 companies' marketing data in real time and allows companies to benchmark and get insights as to how they're performing against the market. We have uh, a financing arm that we do revenue financing for our clients. We have a best-selling book that came out this year. So a bunch of things going on. It's been fun. Uh, that's that's great. And you and I have talked in the past. Um, one of the things I'm fascinated with is the idea of, I don't know whether you consider yourself contrarian, but the idea, I remember one of the things you do is you don't sign contracts. You don't do, oh, it's a two-year contract or an 18-month yeah. contract or a $100,000 contract. Yep. So you guys have to show up every day. Talk me yep. through how that has fueled or maybe at times hampered your ability to scale. Totally. Um I would say generally it's fueled, but it relies on really good work, good economy, and good sales teams. So I would say like this year's a good example, 2022, it creates a little more volatility. But if I look at the market and how you know the public agencies are performing, how other big agencies I know are performing, we're beating all, all of them. There's a very small cohort of agencies that are scale that are doing better than us. It's not many. We're definitely top 2%, maybe better. Um, so the things you'd expect to happen without having long contracts are not what I see happen. Because what happened this year for us is our sales slowed down and our churn went higher because there's companies that are just cutting. And so they just we have cut no long for the sake of cutting. Cut. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And there's not as many companies proactively <clears throat> looking for growth. So both got hit, which means we're going to have a hard time growing. Like, obviously, your churn goes up and your new business goes down. You're going to have a hard time growing. We still were able to keep the business going and did, did just fine. But uh, what I see with the companies that have longer contracts, their sales went to zero. Because if I'm having to commit to you, like we're still, a bad month for us is 30 new clients. So we're still even, because we're not asking anyone for long-term commitments, when things are uncertain, like, well, fire us next month. Like, stop worrying about it. You don't have to predict the future with us. So that's been a really big benefit. Um, and so we're able to combat through that now. It, only, it takes a fight, so to speak. Like we have to be super proactive on the sales side because we're allowing people to run out the back door as fast as they want, whereas some of these companies can hold people to contracts. What I've seen though is most of those long-term contracts have outs anyways. And even if they don't, I've everyone's dealt with this in business on both sides where it's like, yeah, fuck you, sue me. Like we're not- right. I'm not gonna pay you. Yeah, right. I'm not gonna you pay you. Me? Go ahead. Yeah, exactly. Like the, everyone's heard that line. So it's like, yeah, you can, you know, 
I feel like I always felt like contracts were a false sense of security. And I've seen it many times before this business and other businesses, et cetera, where it's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then you got to sue them and you got to chase it. And if it's not a big enough number, you're going to spend more money chasing it. You're just going to let it go. And it's like, it's just not a thing. And so I was like, why give ourselves a false sense of security instead? Let's just focus on the things that drive customer retention. And let's constantly look at that. How do we keep customers like treating them well, communication, good work, good performance, frankly, picking good clients. Like we're really open. We try to be really accessible. It's part of our mission statement, but we've learned like we still have to tee them up really well and communicate really well and set expectations and test them to make sure they're ready for us and make sure we do our audits ahead of time and bring in the right customers because churn becomes a really important number to keep the business going. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting, um, marketing and it's, and it's funny, I'm in the learning and development budget, yeah. if you will. And, uh, what I hear from CEOs, clients of mine is the first budget that goes is learning development. And second that gets cut is marketing. And which is so dumb. <laughs> well, I, I totally get it. But part of the reason is, and I, and I wonder if it's the industry, the marketing industry, uh, when I ask people, they cringe when I say, what's your ROA on? ROI on marketing spend and they cannot tell me, they say, well, the key yeah. is consistently spending. And you go, no, I didn't ask you that. Cause I can yeah, consistently, yeah. yeah, I can consistently fill up my gas tank with, yeah. with a 12 mile per gallon vehicle. Yeah. That doesn't mean I'm getting good gas mileage. That just means yeah. I'm pouring a ton of money into a bed. This is my really issue. How do you track what, that? Yeah. It's actually super easy. It's really like, let's just start with the basics. Look at, your marketing spend and look at your revenue and what's your media efficiency rate? Like how much are you spending on marketing and what is your revenue? Let's start there. And if you're depending on the level of growth you're achieving, that number can ever flow depending on what's acceptable. Like start with the very basic overall numbers and then work down into the individual numbers, which a lot of them are very trackable these days because of digital. Um, Hawk AI does a lot of that. Like that's what we built is like performance marketing tracking and like the ability to benchmark we have and that's not hard to do anymore. Like cookies aren't going away, by the way. That was all bullshit. That was Google trying to figure out if they could actually own the cookie. They right. couldn't. And so they canceled all their plans. Like cookies are still here. You're still able to track. And if at some point they do go away, something will replace them because right. these companies rely on them. So the ability to track that, the problem that we deal with in marketing is it's one of the only jobs that have significant impact that you don't need some sort of credit accreditation or license to do. Like. You need a CPA to be an accountant. You need a, you don't need, but you get what I'm saying. Like to be a, to be a certified professional accountant, you need a CPA. To be a uh, lawyer, you need to pass the bar and keep right. up with it. To be a you real estate agent and sell a house, you need to take a license. But Even somehow- HR, have to, you have to, you have right. to get certification in HR. Yeah. And in marketing, I'm, we manage $350 million of people's money right now. And I don't have any oversight, any regulation, anything. I just have to be a good salesman and hopefully show some performance. Like you have to perform. that to me is yeah. absurd. Thankfully, it becomes really hard to get to our scale without performing, but you can build a few million dollar agency with a great story without any type of chops and how to build a business or do any marketing. You can just sell yourself well and churn through clients and just keep the sales funnel going. And that's 99% of marketing agencies out there. So what you're seeing is people cringe because most people in marketing have no clue what they're doing. And that's really an issue that we've been trying to solve. Yeah. So how do you, uh, so I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one who gets, I get eight to 10 a day, sorry, a week of, I can double your sales and fill your calendar with high, yep. high quality prospects yep. and yeah. your revenue will go up overnight. And I'm looking at these people, I'm going, yep. you look like you're 14, yep. you're a single shingle and yep. you've been in business for a month. Yep. 
And, and, and I'm as polite as I can be, which is some oh, days sort of polite and some days just... But my favorite is I get several emails a week asking if I need help with my marketing. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> these people don't know what they're doing. The the Again, there's no barrier to entry. So anyone can jump right. in and say we can help you. Really but simple. make claims like that, too. It's like when really? we deal with it with our with more un, unsophisticated clients that we talk to, we deal with it all the time. We're like, they're saying they promise us five times returns on our marketing. What do you guys promise? Nothing. If I could promise you something, I'll buy your business and be a billionaire. If right, I well, can guarantee an ROI, yeah. what 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 are we doing? I'll go take your business. Like, there's no guarantee. Yeah. It's a stupid thing to look for, and most sophisticated business people know that. But again, marketers, like the unsavvy marketer, will talk about a guaranteed ROI all the time. I have an article I wrote, I think, for Entrepreneur like eight years ago. That's like, if you have anyone ever guarantees you an ROI, run, because the only way to guarantee beating a, a threshold of mar- a positive ROI on marketing, the only way to guarantee that is to game the system. So, like, if you're actually achieving it and you can get your gaming it, that means you're probably underspending or you're focusing on just retargeting and milking their existing audience. Like, there's ways to guarantee positive ROI on marketing, but it's usually through cannibalizing other efforts and not actually driving right. growth. Because right. in growth, you're going to have times where it's not positive ROI or you're not going to be growing. It's just part of the game. And so, you, it's just, yeah, it's a fallacy that you could have guarantees on this stuff, just like anything in life, frankly. So. Right. That yeah, the whole idea there is exactly what you just said. It's like if someone's talking like that, they don't know what they're doing, or they're they're either they're either dumb or conning you. Like they either, either they're dumb or they think you're dumb. That's just the gist of it. Well, that's I kind of look at it as an intelligence test, and if you yeah. if you even talk to them, you you flunked it. You you, yeah. you don't have yeah. a, you don't have a double digit IQ because you can kind of look at the profile and go. Yeah. We get it all the time with clients. It's like, well, this other agency says they can promise this. I'm like, you should tell them to buy your company, like. Take equity then. If they can guarantee it, why the fuck wouldn't they just own your company and bet their own money? Right, right. But oh, they're not willing to do that, but they're willing to guarantee. Interesting. Yeah. The only, the only when I'm when I'm officially snarky and I have about two minutes, I'll say, if you can, if you can double my revenue, here's my proposal. I'll split all the revenue, bring in fifty fifty, and you make yeah. way more than so whatever proposal you have. And what I always get response, they say, oh, we don't work that way. And go, yeah. of course, of course you don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's and funny. by the way, we don't either, but we don't prompt make empty promises either. We right. tell them we're going to do, we're going to run best practices and do everything we do that's been successful way more times than it hasn't and see what the outcome is. Right. And hopefully we can maximize and work together a long time. <laughs> so walk me through this journey of you built a, you built a successful company and then you went back to consulting. Did you sell the company and then go into consulting or did you just walk away from it or what? You said about Which, ten years ago you were, you were running. Oh yeah, a company. yeah. So I, I sold two different e-commerce companies, started consulting, and realized there was way more need for marketing services than I could do myself. And that's when I started building the team. I never planned on building a big agency. I thought I'd be on to start my third e-commerce brand, and was already working on it. And then I hired this little SWAT team for that became Hawk Media, and I named it just because I was like, it doesn't need to be Eric Consult- Huberman Consulting. Uh, so I called it Hawk Media and Kate just to give it a little more, make it more official. Built a little WordPress site for it, and had a friend design the logo for like three hundred bucks from co- a college friend, right. and uh, and then hired a small little team. That my idea was, I'm going to help these clients that I'm advising for. That really what it was was I had a little bit of money in the bank after selling my last company. And I mean a little bit. It wasn't like I was done, um, and I was 26, and I was like, I don't want to burn into my savings. Like I want to save my money, so I'm going right. to just go 
consult to pay the bills. And I was still, I was really frugal in my twenties. And so I, w I didn't need a lot of money. I was like, if I can go make two, three grand a month, uh, I'll be good, which just to be clear is well below the average income in the U S I, I always get called sure. out. Like, Oh, that's ridiculous. It's like, no, no, no. Like we're talking about 15 bucks an hour. It's minimum wage in California. Like that's what I needed to live off of. And so I was like, I'm going to go figure that out. And at 26, and you'll do that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I had no with kids, you can, but yeah, you don't totally. have to. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. At that point I had no other responsibility. I was, you know, I didn't need to, I didn't want anything fancy. I was good. So, and I had money in the banking case, like I had a nest egg that I wasn't worried about stuff too. So I was like, I'm going to go figure that out. And then like the first person I got hit up to consult and I was like, I just need to go find that kind of money, uh, asked me to work full time. And I said, no, I'll work one day a week. And he's like, no, I want you three days a week. I'm like, okay. And I, so my last company, I was making a hundred grand a year. It was funded all that. And that was my salary. And I thought I was rich. And frankly, I was doing pretty hundred grand a year at 25 is pretty damn right. good. It feels like a ton of money. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I was like, all right. So that's about 50 bucks an hour. So hundred grand a year. And I was like, all right, I'll work for you three days a week, but you got to pay me 200 bucks an hour. And he's like, yeah. Okay. I'm like what? Really? Who, yeah. Who, who me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I, 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 obviously I didn't say what, but I went, uh, okay. And so deal. yeah, deal. deal, sure. That was the start of my consulting career where I was like, all right, wait. And I had, just, I had done one project that I made way too much money on that. I was like, okay, so there's something here where I can make a huge amount of money compared to like what a salary would be, as long as I'm willing to go work for my, you know, hunt for my supper, so to speak and find clients and da da da. So quickly people, I got word, like I, my last company before this was a very, good PR success. Like it was a, a rocket ship of a business that we sold. So I had a great, great credibility in the market. So all these companies wanted me to come work for them. Like I'll consult, I'll consult. First person I was like, I'll, I'll do, let's do a thousand bucks a month. And they're like, fine. Like, fuck, that was too easy. Second person is 2000 bucks a month, still too easy. Third person hesitated at 3000 bucks a month and then said, yes. It's like, that's it. I was like, I don't want to bury the entry here, but I want it to be right there. So three grand a month, this was again, 2013. That was my consulting fee. And so within, I think three or four months between that, you know, three day a week client and all these other consulting clients. Cause I, I looked at, I had a seven day work week. The other thing you do without kids and family and all these other things is like, what else do you have to do? Work, 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 work. It's fine. And Especially so you enjoy it. Yeah. And I was loving it. I love this marketing thing and it was really fun. And I was working with great companies and watching growth. And frankly, so I was getting to four months into this, I'm making 350 grand a year. As a 1099, so dealing with my own tax liability, which for those that don't know is very, very fun. Um, I mean that. That's not being seeing sarcastic. You could, the amount of things you can write off and deal with, like all that, and like I and so making boatloads of money by myself, running around, working out of a Starbucks next to my you know apartment I lived in, or or my friend's incubator that I ended up becoming an LP in, or you know, and sometimes at the client that wanted me there three days a week. And right. all of a sudden, again, I'm a few months in, I'm making a ton of money. I hired an assistant to start helping me and run around with me. And then I went, there's something more here. Like I tried to bring in agencies to help these companies and kind of what we talked about before they were all full of shit. And I had problems finding good partners. And I went, I'm just going to create my own little thing again with the idea that once this is all up and running, I'm going to transition. And I was building a tea company, like drinking tea. And by the way, as hyper as I sound, I don't drink caffeine. And so uh, it was pretty funny that I was about to get into the tea business and I'm not a caffeine or really a tea drinker. I just thought there was an opportunity there. Um, and after hiring this little team, I launched the tea company at the same time. And within two months, I'm like, tea company is going to be a grind. This is really fun. I'm sticking with the marketing thing. Yeah, and that's, that's interesting. 
So you're you're 250 employees now? Yeah. Okay. Um, do you have regrets about building a big organization as opposed to being, uh, as, as a friend calls me, uh, an upstart punk? No, I would say there's other, I wouldn't say regrets. Um, there are challenges that drive me nuts sometimes when you're dealing with like, you know, this big of an org, this big, which is not that big in the context, but like, you know, it is the cultural shifts that you need things like things don't happen as fast. Like it's just right. part of it. You have 10 people around, like our first team was like seven people around one conference table. We all worked right. at a, a table. And so there was, it was, we changed every 10 minutes. We were doing something. It was a right. different business. And you can solve yeah. it in one, one 15 minute meeting. Yeah. And frankly, like I could solve court company wide problems for years. I could be like, shit, we need more revenue. I'm going to go sell a few people and boom, we're good. Like now it can't, it does, like I can't carry the weight. I wish I could like actually, cause I'll work my butt off still to make things happen, but there's a limitation to one, what one person right. can do. And so that I'd say is probably the crux of the frustration of the size. It's not the, the, uh, the problems that happen. Like people bitch about lots of people and the, you know, the people problems you deal with. And I'm like, I've, yes, they come up, but like, I, I think it's, you talk about kids. So I have a, my first ba child is four months and, yelling right now having fun oh, wow. so you're you're a new dad i'm a new dad yeah. um and it's reminded me similarly where it's i think people have a propensity to focus on the tiny amount of negative shit becomes the only thing they focus on and talk about where it's like okay but like having a, a army of people that are in it for the same reason that are guiding running with your vision that you're creating lives and people are having kids and people are doing all these things like and you and like hawk media will be nine years old uh, in two weeks and it's like what we've created the amount of lives that have gone like careers that have started with us careers that have continued with us we've got several people that have been with us for eight nine years it's like the people that have bought houses and had kids like it's just it's so cool that like the you know two employee lawsuits we had in the past nine years because with, with asshole employees that were just looking for a money grab like out of the 700 people that have worked at Hawk Media, give or take, right. like, yeah. yeah take st the statistically, you, you've done way better than most people. Yeah. Well, and not even just most people. I also listen to people that maybe have a little worse of like employee problems within that. But still, it's like, it's a cost of doing business. It sucks. Don't get me wrong. But like, it's all mindset. Same thing. So I was relating it to having a kid because all you hear about from parents is like sleepless nights, changing diapers, uh, colic. No, no life. Yeah. Yeah. No, no life. Can't do yeah. anything. Your life changes and they don't look happy about it, et cetera. These are all the things that got thrown at me right before having a kid. Turns out it's very much what I thought it was, which is like, yeah, sometimes you get woken up at night. It happens. Like it's going to happen and happens less and yeah. less and less. Uh, changing a diaper is the most m minute thing I've ever done in my life. Like it is not a big deal. I don't know why people complain about it. Like right. you change a lot of diaper. Like I'm very involved. Again, I work from home um, and it's like, I, I, I thought that was going to be like a five minute battle with my daughter six times a day. And now I've realized it's like two seconds and you're done and they're all Velcro and it's really easy to wipe a butt this big. Like yeah. it's, and so it's the same thing with business where it's like, again, you asked about, you know, do, the regret. It's like, no, I definitely don't have regrets. Are there challenges? Yeah. But I also like experiencing new challenges. What drives me nuts is doing the same thing over and over again. Like when I get that, like if I was still running a 20 person agency, I think I would have been done a long time ago because I wouldn't be learning anything. You would have been bored out of your mind? I think, well, I don't think bored would be the word. Yes, in some senses, but I think like 
agencies there's not a lot of room for boredom like it'll it'll crash and burn if you don't have a lot to do so i I think it's less about boredom and it's more about if i'm not achieving i am very anxious if i don't feel like things are progressing and achieving and so like i don't deal with a lot of mental health stuff period i'm a pretty level-headed guy but when i don't feel like things are progressing and moving getting better and the future looks brighter that is where i really struggle and Mm -hmm. so if it's not running a bigger and bigger and better and better agency with progress, then I want out. So the idea of staying in the startup pocket and being the scrappy renegade startup at 20 people or 10 people, whatever, no, then I'm not learning anything. I'm not growing. Right. So uh, curious, you obviously have grown really, really fast and mm-hmm. you've, you know, you had an inflection point. What was the biggest, um, like success or what I would call a counterintuitive move that maybe didn't make sense at the time, but really paid off. Yeah. And what was the biggest, what was the biggest pothole that you say, uh, if I had it all, yeah. to do it over, I, I certainly would have avoided this. That was a mistake at the time. Just didn't yeah. see it. Yeah. Two really easy answers on those. The, so the, the success one we already hinted on, but every advisor, everyone I know in business, everyone I respected told me month to month, like no contract is ridiculous. You'll never build a business off that. And now we've got literally, at this point, I don't know that there's many independent agencies bigger than us. Like we're one of the biggest that is not owned by private equity or one of the holding companies, right. like just, or publicly traded. Like we're just, we're one of the biggest. So apparently it can work. Like <laughs> at this point, I think the proofs of the pudding that like what we did could work. And that was the antithesis of what every agency person I knew, everyone told me. And I get the challenges, but I, I was like, I think there's a way to figure this out. And we did. It's, it's um, funny. I've, I've, I've never used contracts with people ever. Yeah, because the truth is, if you're in a coaching partnership and it's not producing value, it's obvious to both sides, and you should do- yeah. be done with it. it you shouldn't yep. stick with it because you paid for a year or because you signed it for a year. It doesn't make yep. any sense. No, and uh, and it makes it I, easy for people to say, "Well, let's try it for a couple of months, and I'll know." You go. Well, yep, the idea of the customer making the job of the business easier is great. Like we deal with it with a lot of uh, software companies that we sign up with that want like a year of their payment up front. Yeah. or an annual contract that I'm like, you're talking to the wrong fucking guy. Like, sorry, like, I'm not going to do that. We, and I mean, my, even my own staff pushes back on me sometimes. I'd have two, I'd have, I have two of them in that in the last 60 days and I had just paid the yearly yeah. said, sorry, we're closing our doors. And I was like, I just paid you yearly. What happens to my, yeah. and it's kind of like too bad for you. We're going yeah. under. And you go, yeah. well, you didn't tell me that when you were pushing me to make the annual subscription. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a it. lot of money. It's a couple hundred bucks, but it's, I no, felt like yeah. they obviously knew they were in trouble. They should have said, we're yep. putting everybody on month to month because we're having trouble and they didn't. And yep. I'm out of cup. My, my bad. My bad. Yeah. And, 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 I, and I'm most like, I'm less worried about that than I'm like, I'm dealing with my own cash flow. I'm not here to finance yours. Like, right. sorry. And on top of that, like, I, like, the only reason I'm not going to pay you is if you've completely dropped the ball on something. Like, I pay my bills right. unless right. you don't perform. Right. Like, that's how this works. So, um, yeah, just we we've literally walked away from vendor relationships. Just like they they won't give up give that up. And I'm like, okay, we'll find a yeah. comp- everybody's got a competitor. We're not yeah. worried about it. Yeah. Um, so what's so, the biggest pot? What's the biggest pothole? Biggest you pothole. Gosh darn it! Uh, I should have done yeah. that one differently. It and it's something we continue to get better and better at, but I don't think we fully learned yet, which is. Uh, continuing to like over hire a little bit on the operational side, like the service side uh, to try to get ahead of growth 
to try to give relief to some of our people and like, you know, make the job a little easier by giving them more bandwidth and things like that. And you realize like you want something done, give it to the busy person first off, like that that's really important. Like people that are in the pocket and have a schedule and have to do time management work yeah. way better. So making it too easy on people actually kills our culture every time we've done it Two, if we don't grow, like we think we are and we miss our projections, now we're underwater and we're in trouble and we're a bootstrap company. So every time we've tried to do that, we've ended up in a, you know, a world of hurt because now we're trying to figure out, like, we don't want to cut people. We don't have layoffs, but now we can't hire people that we want to. And like, it just turns into this nightmare while the culture ends up getting bad because people, when they're not busy, end up looking for shit and caught, you know, breaking things. And like that, it's just, and I do it too. It's human nature. So I, yeah, I've just learned like keeping things really efficient and tight, like hard work, but pay well is a way better model than medium work, medium pay. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys, you guys still haven't quite taken that to heart. I know we have. I mean, I think, I think it's just a constant moving target. Like then we dealt with the past two years of, uh, in crazy inflation and wages and the great uh, resignation. And so we had to replace a bunch of people. Then you're like, do we hire this person? Cause we know someone's probably going to leave next month or do we not? And like, right. it's, it's, it, there's no perfect answer, yeah, but 250, you're going to, you're, you're constantly going to have that going on. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, you know, we generally are hiring a few people a week and we're losing a couple people a week. You know, it's like, that's just not, maybe not that much, but it's, you get the idea is like, it's, it's, uh, having someone quit on a regular basis is normal at 250 people right. and having, you know, having to hire just to replace, even if we're not growing the business. Right. So it's like, you know, we have a full recruiting team, all that. So it's figuring out that balance and not getting ahead of it. And also, again, we're trying to predict the future in some ways. Like we want to invest in the growth of the company, but you got to be careful in like a time like now where it's like every intuition I have, every study I've done on the economy tells me that we've got maybe a two, three more months of like scary market drop shit. And then it starts to calm down and recover. Like yeah. everything I know about, like I've studied the shit out of this this past year because my business is so affected by it. Yeah. And I've talked to some of the best wealth managers on the planet. I've like really hammered at this because it drives me nuts. And so now that I see that, it's like, okay, so we want to start looking at growth Q2 next year and start yeah. getting back into it if that's the case. But I got to be careful because if I over... I can't overcommit to that because if it doesn't happen because of some, you know, black swan event, you know, Putin launches a nuke, that's the big variable everyone's afraid of. Uh, I can't, I don't want to get over our skis either. Right. Right. Which is odd yeah. to be talking about my marketing agency in a nuclear war. It really shouldn't fucking matter anyways, but. <laughs> right. Right. No, it's, it's interesting. Um, talk to me about, uh, there's an ongoing conversation I have with lots of CEOs of scaling companies is there a correlation between what I'll call appetite for risk or risk tolerance and scaling? I think the idea of risk is inflated in entrepreneurship. I think calculated risk and measured risk and uh, hedged risk is how successful entre entrepreneurs get there. The whole idea of bet the farm, it's kind of like I have to quit my job to start my company. It's like, why not just work nights? Right, like, why not do a side hustle? Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then when it gets to the point that it can pay you to quit your job, do that. Like it's it's that hedged risk that I see more success from because if you bet the farm, it's kind of like a lottery ticket. Like just sure, you can win. There are winners there, but most of those people you don't hear about because they're not successful and they're gone. Like not dead, but like not they're not you're not people we talk about. And so I actually think 
when it comes to growth and risk, it's calculated risk. And it's, but it's the idea that I do think you have to have a level of, I don't mind losing some of this, so to speak. Like you don't want to bet the farm on every move you make, but you've like, you're going to hire, like you hire a salesperson, you got to pay their salary and have them on board and do all that before they start producing. That in itself is a risk. Is that a major risk? No, hopefully not. You know, it's like, so the idea isn't betting the farm, but you're constantly making incremental bets and some win, some lose. It's about winning more than you lose. But I do think you have to be making bets and calculated bets, things that like the numbers pencil out, you've built a business model that can support this and it makes sense to do this, but it's still a risk and you're still going to lose money on certain efforts. So the idea of never losing money is crazy in terms of trying to grow. But again, I think it's calculated and measured risk. I I asked because, and I'm sure you're seeing it too, I'm getting the knee-jerk reaction. A lot of times it's board-driven. My board said we have to cut 20% because all of the portfolio companies of this private equity group, they're they're making, they're instituting 20% cuts. And I'm going, whose idea was that? That's a stupid idea to just... Uh, How many tech companies are across every industry? You guys are yeah. growing. Why? Why are you cutting? It makes no sense. There's a couple but. things there. You know, I saw many tech companies that grew, and we have a venture fund, so we have, we have 35 portfolio companies, like 50, 70, 100 percent growth this year, and laying off 30 percent of their people. It's like that's kind of funny. Like you, right. you almost doubled, you doubled your business, but you cut your staff. Right. But I also believe there was a, there hasn't been any pressure on tech companies to have profitability, like in 20 right. years. So. I think that there's something there to like all these companies had just gotten fat and happy, not ever having to think about profit. And so I think it was a swing that had to happen in that sense. And that's probably why in some ways it's like, why would you cut? But at the same time, like you don't need 30% of your people as part of the problem. You are not being headcount efficient. And I think a lot of companies did that over the past 20 years. And so, you know, that's why you're seeing this. It's not because the company will crumble if they don't do it. It's more opportunity than risk where it's like you can cut 30 percent of your people and make way more money and you won't miss a beat and i think elon musk really sent the tone for that with twitter he's i actually think he's making a lot of other mistakes but the idea that twitter needed five thousand people to run didn't make any sense yeah it didn't make any sense no it didn't make any sense to me either it's um a venture capitalist friend of mine calls it series dud Anybody that's on Series D for their software company because they're saying we need we just our last round was 160, so this one's got to be 300 million. You say, what can you possibly need 300 million for when you've yeah. got a thousand employees? I, I don't. Yeah. It, um, and all of a sudden, the VCs are starting to shift and say you should be you should actually be cash flow positive. Exactly. Uh, software company. It's we time to look at an IPO. It's time to look at an exit. Like yeah. yeah. But we're, it, hoping it, it, we're, we're early investors and we we're in some deals that are getting to that point and we're like guys like we want our money out like right <laughs> you're a big company now like you are worth a lot we're gonna make great money off your sale like ipo sell do something and this year sucks for that like just to be right. blunt like google i've heard is trading at like what six to eight times earnings like that's right. absurd right uh, the only thing coming for google potentially is open ai but that's brand new. There's no reason other than that that Google should be trading that well. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, last serious question: uh, What do you optimize for as a either as a company or as a CEO? What do you optimize for in your company? What do I optimize my company for myself? Well, uh, not not uh, you personally, but I mean, like some some companies optimize for efficiency, some optimize for culture, some optimize for revenue, some optimize for net profit. How do yeah, you 
Yeah. What do you, uh, how, it's or a, what do you focus on in optimizing? I change it on a usually annual, maybe quarterly basis. Um, right now I'm optimizing for more predictability stability, just because again, I want to like weather whatever's coming and we're to keep going to it, but a bootstrap company. So I want to like, we're fine. We have lines of credit we've never used. Like we're, we built a lot of nest egg that if something hits us blindside, we're okay. But I want to, I like optimizing for stability right now so that, because, and we did that the past year, we cut any superfluous expenses. Like a lot of people did, like we're spending money on stuff that like we looked at and we're like, is this really actually creating value for the company? Like, no, the answer is it's just not, we spent it because we had it, but you don't, this isn't driving, there's no business case for this, you know? Okay. And so, you know, paying for 250 people to have uh, headspace when 20 people use it. Right. So how about we just pay for those 20 people? Like, right. what the fuck? <laughs> so there's a lot of focus on that kind of like efficiency right now. And like kind of what I said, maximizing sort of a revenue per head, which, which we, we we're what we do in terms of the way we manage our business, we're strict on margin, not maximizing margin, meaning we're going to, if we make more money, our people make more money. That's it. Like we want a strict profit, not maximizing profit, which is probably not music to every private equity funds years, but right. for us, how we run it, like we found that to be the best way. And so what we're trying to do is figure out, can we serve more with less and still perform really well? And we have been able to, and because what ends up happening is we get better and better talent. We get a higher concentration of great talent that makes more money. So they're not going to go anywhere and they can handle, you know, it's, it's, it's what we really started the business premise on. And then when we scaled, we had to bring in other people and we've learned like, we'd rather just have less people that work harder that make more money. And that's something we've really done the past year. So going to next year, we're starting to look at, again, prepping for growth is best way to put it. So profitable growth, but growth and looking to get back to that upward trajectory after this year was really about solid stability platform efficiency. Right. No, it makes, makes, makes great sense, especially in the in the climate work. Yeah, it was climate driven completely. It, yeah. our, we went into this year ramping up for major growth, like ramping up for frankly unprofitable growth. Like let's just get, we wanted to get to that, you know, basically with our business, like the $500 million mark with growth, gross revenue. So like a net revenue of a hundred million. Um, that was what we were aiming for. We're like, let's get there, let's crush it. And we went out the gate like that. And uh, and then we saw everybody trying, cutting everything. And again, we, we still did fine, but we, we just, weren't on it. You we adjusted in mid-year. Mid yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Um, last question. I, I, uh, we, we ask it of all our guests. It's kind of fun. If we had gone to your junior high school, seventh, eighth grade, when everybody has braces and pimples and yeah. puberty and all that stuff, how would, were there, were there signs there that we would have bet on you 20 years later as a successful? And if, if so, who were you in seventh or eighth grade where you go, this would have been a guy to put a put a futures bet on twenty yeah. years later. The the irony was my first investor in my first company was uh, taught an entrepreneurship class in my eighth grade, and then called me when I was in uh, in two thousand. He was a junior high teacher. No, he was my friend's dad that came in to teach an entrepreneurial class. Oh, I was going to say, there's no way you're going to find a teacher in junior high that teaches entrepreneurism. Oh, okay. No, yeah, no, he was an entrepreneur. He was one of the co-founders of Pay-Per-View on the board of Men's Warehouse, had another company with Deepak Chopra. And I didn't know anything about him other than he was my friend's dad that taught this class in eighth grade. But he called me when I was 
just turned 22 and said, hey, I want to figure out how to help musicians harness their entrepreneurial spirit. Do you have any ideas? And I wrote a whole business plan. And he went and raised us a million bucks in 2009. That was my first digital company. Um, so he told me that at that point, I've always admired your entrepreneurial spirit because like when I was eight, I was buying and selling Beanie Babies and made 4,000 bucks as an eight-year-old like trading Beanie Babies. Like I was always, and I thought I wanted to be a, hence the music thing. I wanted, I was a guitarist and not a very good one, but I always loved it. So I thought like my, when I grow up, I'm going to be a rock star. I'm going to be a guitarist. Sure, why not? Yeah. Love the performing aspect of it. Hated practicing, but that's what I thought I was going to yeah, do. Yeah, you're just going to be Slash. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I thought I was going to be, and that was my whole thing. And then I realized around around that time, around eighth grade, that I wasn't that good. And so I went, all right, maybe I should focus. <laughs> right, on up until then, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, so in, yeah, in they're, that, I was they're always cruel. Doing they're cruel at a junior high school dance or a bar mitzvah when you suck. Yeah. And the good news is like, no one was ever cruel. It was actually self-awareness that my friends all, I played since I was four years old and a bunch of my friends picked it up when we were 12 and 13 and they were better than me within six months. Right. And I was like, okay. Right. Like they're all doing stuff I can't do. Like I'm not naturally gifted at this. Something. Yeah, I'm maybe, maybe, the, yeah, yeah, maybe I should, maybe I should read the tea leaves here. Right. Yeah. yeah, I was not naturally gifted, and I didn't want to do the work, so I wasn't Kobe Bryant either. That was in the gym every so day. You should, yeah, you should have been the manager. You should. Yeah, you well, so that's what I was. That's what I pursued. So I, I thought I was going to go to the Berkeley School of Music for music management until about, I think it was like 16. I went. You know what? Music can be a hobby. I'll just go to business. I'll go figure out business. And that's what I ended up getting into. So that was the sort of trajectory. But the reason I got more and more into business was I watched behind the music with Sting at uh, 12 years old with my mom. And he got ripped off for like $25 million by his business manager. And I went, how does that happen? She's like, he didn't understand business. He just missed it. I'm like, oh, so to be a musician, you have to understand business. And so then I just became fascinated with numbers and business. And frankly, I come from an entrepreneurial family. My dad was an entrepreneur. My grandfather was. So I always was raised around stuff that you take for granted of understanding how this all worked in a different way. I just thought at some point I'd run a business because that's what all my family did too. My uncle runs a business. Like my other uncle ran a business. Like everyone had their businesses. I was, I, this is what I gravitated towards that I was like, I always thought of getting a job as a way to learn to eventually build my own thing. Right. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, Eric, um, thank you for uh, appearing today on Genius at Scale. And for our regular listeners, uh, tune in again. We look forward to seeing you down the road. All the best. Thanks for joining us today. Are you ready to scale? If so, invest three minutes in our scalability index. It's simple, easy, and gives specific guidance. Find it at evokinggenius.com slash scale. All the best.